The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World, Episode 74, Teotihuacan. In this episode, we will start in the modern capital city of Mexico, which is called Mexico City. Among the southern suburbs is an archaeological site called Quiquilco, and this site is believed to date back to the second millennium BCE, a time which we know to be contemporary to the Olmec culture, which had emerged in the south of the modern country of Mexico. Quiquilco's standout feature is something described as a circular pyramid. Anything circular cannot really be correctly described as a pyramid, but it certainly seems that this building is of the same ilk as other pre-Columbian American pyramids. It is simply that this one is circular instead of angular. We can even make the comparisons of Quiquilco with the Zapotec site of Monte Alban, which featured heavily during episode 73. We learned about Monte Alban that it had a ceremonial acropolis and was surrounded by lesser classified individuals residing on the lower lands. We can detect that the same kind of stratified culture existed at Quilquilco and that many thousands of people lived there. Mexico City is built on top of the site of a number of ancient lakes which would have been of use to the people who lived around them. These lakes were of great use to the residents of Teotihuacan and the later city of Tenochtitlan before the Spanish migrants would need to start draining these lakes to prevent flooding to the growing Mexico City. Now there are no signs of the vast lakes that were once the dominant feature of this area. The fate of Quiquilco would be determined by a different natural geographical feature, just five miles to the southwest of the settlement. This is the volcano called Xitla. What we know about Xitla is that it erupted and buried the city of Quiquilco. It initially seemed logical that Quiquilco was abandoned following the eruption of Xitla, and this led to a population boom in the further off emerging city of Teotihuacan, the subject for today's episode. However, this could be a little bit too convenient. The eruption of Xitla, the abandonment of Quiquilco, and the establishment of Teotihuacan were all supposed to have happened in the later stages of the first millennium BCE. More recent carbon dating methods have suggested that the eruption actually happened around the year 300 CE, which is considerably later. The fact that Teotihuacan had already become a highly significant settlement by that time upsets our simple timelines a bit 
and points towards a more complicated sequence of events. So maybe both cities coexisted, and maybe Quilquilco had been abandoned by many before the eruption of the volcano brought a thick layer of ash down on top of the city. Whatever the accurate story is, we can feel sure that the city of Teotihuacan was not negatively affected by the fall of Quilquilco. Emergence So the abandonment and destruction of Quilquilco would have been sometime around the turn of the first millennium, give or take a couple of hundred years, and it may not have been a single event, but a protracted event. Even though the emergence of Teotihuacan is traditionally discussed as something that happened in the early first millennium, it is speculated that small settlements may have existed since around 600 BCE. The site can be found around 25 miles northeast of the modern city of Mexico City and 35 miles northeast of Quiquilco. There may have been a few thousand people living around the area that would eventually become the powerful city of Teotihuacan in these early years. Whether it be as a direct consequence of a mass migration of peoples from Quiquilco or not, and if so, whether that migration was as a consequence of the eruption of Xitla, and whether a migration from Quiquilco to Teotihuacan happened at all, what happened at Teotihuacan at the start of the first millennium is considerable. We can speculate that the population there expanded rapidly to a point where it would become the greatest city of Mesoamerica during this period, even outgrowing the Zapotec city of Monte Alban. Layout Teotihuacan is one of the more interesting ancient cities of the world, and its preservation without any contemporary written information can be compared to ancient cities such as Mohenjo-Daro in the modern country of Pakistan. Studies have been made of the ancient city which have helped us to build a picture of life in Teotihuacan, and what we have discovered makes Teotihuacan quite unique. So let's have a look at the main features of this large and interesting site. Back in Volume 2 we spoke of a Mesoamerican culture called the Olmecs and during that episode we spoke about their city called La Venta. The Olmec city of La Venta was built roughly on a north-south axis and we can say that same thing about Teotihuacan. The main layout feature at Teotihuacan is a one and a half mile long straight avenue running in an approximate north-south direction. Standing at the far south of this avenue and looking northwards you have a great view of the pyramid monuments built at this city and then beyond the end of the avenue is the imposing mountain of Cerro Gordo standing as a natural northern monument looking straight back down the avenue at anybody standing on it. The avenue has been called the Avenida de los Muertos, the Avenue of the Dead, and it may have received this name due to the tombs along it. At the far south of the Avenue of the Dead 
is a comparatively small pyramid set back on the eastern side of the avenue. It looks over a sunken plaza, which may have been a ceremonial gathering point for the city's population. This palazzo complex is called the Ciudadela. The Ciudadela may have been the area of the city that was built a little bit later than other areas and possibly acted as the residency of the elite rulers of the city. Although there doesn't appear to be any royal tombs at Teotihuacan, suggesting the city may have been ruled by an oligarchy. The pyramid is called the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. It's interesting that the pyramid has been given this name because Quetzalcoatl is the feathered serpent deity of the Aztec culture who are not really associated with this area until around a thousand years after the construction of this monument. Images of a feathered serpent can be found on this monument, hence the application of the name Quetzalcoatl. This demonstrates that the beliefs of the Aztecs can be traced back to an earlier time. On the opposite side of the Avenue of the Dead from the plaza and the Temple of the Feathered Serpent that make up the Ciudadela is the Great Compound which experts have speculated to have been a marketplace. As you walk north along the Avenue of the Dead you inevitably cross the San Juan River which could have been one of the most important waterways for the large population of Teotihuacan, as we have already learned that irrigation was essential to support large urban populations, and we can see deliberate efforts to steer the river through the city according to the north-south orientation of the buildings. To the north of the river, we can see the remnants of a large number of buildings that speak to us about the everyday life of the residents of Teotihuacan and the discoveries made by experts are quite astonishing in terms of the actual residential buildings themselves and we will come back to that and talk about that more later on. For now let's continue talking about the outstanding temple monuments. To the east of the avenue was the largest construction at the Teotihuacan called the Pyramid of the Sun. Now, we also have to be very careful about the names of the buildings here, as the name Pyramid of the Sun is a name given to the pyramid by the Aztecs around a thousand years later. The Aztecs would have been much like us, with a limited understanding of the abandoned city of Teotihuacan, and casting a historian's eye on the site and making their own interpretations in exactly the same way as we are doing now in the modern age. We can see a similar recognition of the importance of the sun and the moon as we did when discussing the ancient Mochi civilization city of Cerro Blanco from the first millennium Peru in South America that we discussed in episode 72. The Pyramid of the Sun is among the tallest ancient pyramids of the Americas and is comparable in size to the pyramids of ancient Egypt and also the mausoleum of Qin Shi Huang built in the 3rd millennium BCE for the first emperor of all of China and something we discussed during episode 66. All of these buildings are shaped like pyramids and found in various places all around the ancient world so now might be a good time for me to give my brief analysis of ancient pyramids on planet Earth. I believe that the construction of pyramids 
was autonomous in the various areas of the world because wherever you go in the world you see an attempt to worship the objects of the sky and ancient constructions demonstrate this. If you wanted to build a tall and stable construction then the pyramid was as good a shape as any. It's not that we don't see other shapes such as large circular buildings but the pyramid would have been a geometrically uncomplicated and successful shape and we should not be surprised to see the autonomous creation of them in different areas of the world. The location of this huge pyramid is over a natural cave so it would have been deliberately constructed with respect to the cave itself. It may have been that the people of Teotihuacan held this cave in high regard as a spiritual location as we can see evidence of this kind of attitude towards caves among ancient pre-Columbian Mesoamerican civilizations. Other than that we really don't have much more detail about the reason why this cave may have been so important to the people of Teotihuacan. If we rejoin the main street to the Avenue of the Dead, we can continue further north to a point where we can go no further as our path is blocked by the Pyramid of the Moon. As we walked north along the avenue, the vast pyramid is visible as the end point with the Cerro Gordo mountain beyond it in the background seemingly like a parental figure standing over the pyramid. It is hard to consider this to not be a deliberate aspect of the original construction plan. The Pyramid of the Moon is not quite as large as the Pyramid of the Sun and it is surrounded by a number of smaller buildings including smaller temples and open courtyards. The Pyramid of the Moon is believed to cover a sacrificial burial place with many human remains having been discovered. With all that we know and that we have discovered it would make sense that these pyramid sites would have had a spiritual significance before the construction of the pyramids and that the pyramid of the moon and the avenue of the dead were both built initially with regard for the site underneath the pyramid of the moon and then with regard for the Cerro Gordo mountain in the distance. The pyramid of the sun was slightly east of the north-south line of the avenue so the avenue would continue southwards until its eventual end near the Pyramid of the Feathered Serpent. The Pyramid of the Moon is believed to have been constructed over many generations, so the project may not have initially have been envisaged as it ended up, but certainly these pyramids have to be considered among the most impressive pyramids of the ancient Americas and even among the most impressive pyramids of the entire world. The existence of the two great pyramids of the sun and the moon and the ability of visitors to the site to this very day to be able to climb the pyramids allows for one to be able to photograph one from the other with impressive results. Population. There can be no doubt that despite the site being dominated by religious temples that evidently demonstrate a lot of ritual activity, that this site was a residential site that grew from humble beginnings and fast became the most impressive settlement of the Americas to date when it was at its peak between the years of 200 and 650. 
What is very striking when looking at the residential buildings is that there appears to be a standard of living that is unusually high, with the residential buildings being very large and very well decorated. When reading about Teotihuacan, I found myself comparing the living arrangements to those of Mohenjo-Daro. Mohenjo-Daro was an ancient city of the modern country of Pakistan that was at its peak almost two and a half thousand years before Teotihuacan, but seemed to be constructed with similar levels of planning that indicated a lack of pressure on the society to develop its social systems quickly due to competition. So the alternative pressure in these relatively safe circumstances would have more likely been population growth. Some residential buildings in Mohenjo-Daro would have been occupied by multiple families in a large spacious building with private rooms centred around a central entrance court or a courtyard. This appears to be the norm at Teotihuacan. Numbers of around 200,000 residents have been suggested at Teotihuacan, but there are more humble estimates nearer to 100,000 by experts who have actually worked very closely at the site with various archaeological and mapping projects. Nonetheless, this still means that this would have been the largest urban centre in the Americas at the time. It would have certainly have been comparable to the largest ancient cities of Eurasia before the Classical Age, would usher in cities of Europe, North Africa, the Near East and China that would number into the multiple hundreds of thousands. Understanding everyday life in Teotihuacan is still sketchy at this point, but there really is no getting away from how impressively luxurious the ordinary living conditions appear to be for the common person. Carefully painted murals adorn the walls of the residences and created drainage systems exist for the occupants of each communal residency building. Dr Michael E. Smith is an American archaeologist and professor who specialises in Aztec history and as a consequence has worked extensively at Teotihuacan and whose work has helped us to understand the layout and purpose of the regular buildings at Teotihuacan which can be considered as a pre-Aztec city. As well as the artefacts and murals that Smith studied at the residences of Teotihuacan, he also recognised a culture of burying the dead underneath the floors of the household, which is similar to that which we discovered at Chatulhuyuk in the modern country of Turkey, which was occupied up until 6,000 years before this time period and something that we explored way back during Volume 1. Due to a comparative lack of metallurgy in this area of the world, in general, we can still find evidence of napping stone and obsidian to create cutting tools, which is a wonderful example of a human tradition that has been replaced by modern technology in today's world, but lasted right up until the modern age from its origins in prehistory and the first Stone Age humans from millions of years ago. In our overview of the site of Teotihuacan, we mentioned a great compound which sat on the opposite side of the southern end of the Avenue of the Dead to the Ciudadela, which is the location of the Pyramid of the Feathered Serpent. We also mentioned that this great compound was speculated to be an ancient marketplace. 
it could be that Teotihuacan, with its vast size and success, was an important trade centre of Mesoamerica. And it certainly would have been a place of significance and probably known to many Mesoamericans who were not actually local to Teotihuacan. We can assume this because of there being evidence of artefacts which relate to the styles of other Mesoamerican cultures such as the Zapotecs and the Mixtecs, and pointing us towards there being an ethnic presence of such people among the regular Teotihuacan population. The time of Teotihuacan also coincided with the growth of the classical age Mayans of the Yucatan Peninsula and the modern countries of Belize and Guatemala. The Mayans would have likely traded materials such as jade to be able to access the obsidian-rich resources of the Teotihuacanos, and they would have likely travelled by sea via canoes as well as the traditional land routes. We'll take a closer look at these emerging Mayans during episode 75. Whether it be directly or through other cultures such as the Mayans, we can suggest that the Teotihuacan trade network could have been reaching lands as far south as the modern country of Panama. We have spoken at length about trade networks in the classical world during this volume and particularly during episode 71 about the Silk Road. We have a lot of written records of trade going on between Eurasian cultures, but not so much for the cultures of the Americas, either because we cannot interpret what we do have, or because records were destroyed by post-Columbian colonisers. Timeline As you can imagine, without written records, it can be very difficult to construct a timeline for the rise and fall of Teotihuacan. But in my opinion, we can certainly look upon Teotihuacan as a cultural entity and an influential civilization in the same way that we would look upon the Olmecs and the Zapotecs and also in the same way that we will look upon the Toltecs and the Aztecs. It can be easy to assume that Teotihuacan was simply a city occupied by a population. But artefacts far away from Teotihuacan demonstrate not only a knowledge of Teotihuacan, but a military aggression from the people of Teotihuacan, who we can refer to as Teotihuacanos. We know that Teotihuacan emerged from humble beginnings and we explored the possibility of the catastrophic eruption of Xitla, covering much of the landscape in volcanic lava, forcing communities to migrate and possibly towards alternative settlements such as Teotihuacan. The city of Quiquilco serves as good evidence of the destruction of a settlement due to volcanic debris during this period, and we explored this at the beginning of the episode. It has been hard for historians to accurately date everything, especially as the sequence of events is quite speculative, but we can say that by the year 200, the population of Teotihuacan had grown to such a significant amount that the large-scale constructions of the pyramids and plazas was well underway. So we can suggest that the three major pyramids were in place relatively early in Teotihuacan's history and before the civilization reached its zenith. When it comes to the story of the Teotihuacanos as a civilization, we have very little in the way of written records to describe events. However, there may still be some clues 
if we choose to look further away than the obvious. In Mayan inscriptions, there is a portrayal of an owl, a bird that was native to Mesoamerica, with the owl holding a spear. This character is referred to by historians as the spear-thrower owl. Despite being found in Mayan lands, it is believed that the spear-thrower owl has some very real connection to the civilization of Teotihuacan. One of the most powerful cities of the Mayan civilizations was called Tikal, which existed in what is the north of the modern country of Guatemala. Inscriptions found at Tikal describe the arrival of foreigners from the west, dressed and armed with equipment typical of Teotihuacan. We can recognise the same attributes of the depiction of the spear-thrower owl. The arrival of spear-thrower owl and the Teotihuacanos coincides with the passing of the king of Tikal, Chak-Tok-Ichak. Chak-Tok-Ichak's successor as the king of Tikal is named Yach-Nun-Ayin and he is described as the son of spear-thrower owl. So this would suggest a dynasty change in Tikal to the new dynasty from the city of Teotihuacan. As spear-thrower owl has been described as a king of Teotihuacan, then we could suggest that this might have been a form of imperial expansion. But we don't recognise a mass movement of Teotihuacano culture into Mayan lands and experts believed that there was less likelihood of a monarchy in Teotihuacan and more likelihood of an oligarchy. There is still so much to learn. We can however suggest that this sequence of events can be dated to the year 378 thanks to the comprehensive calendar systems of Mesoamerica, which we touched upon during the Zapotec episode 73. One suggestion is that this was more likely to be a migration of a disparate group of people from Teotihuacan led by a man who was referred to as Spearthrower Al, but somebody who was not sent by the central state. If we move southwards, the modern country of Guatemala forms a barrier between Mexico and the rest of Central America, and then in turn, the country of Honduras forms a barrier between Guatemala and the rest of Central America. Just over the border from Guatemala to Honduras, we can find another Mayan-cultured ancient city called Copan. Copan emerged shortly after the supposed Teotihuacan conquest of Tikal and was on the southern extremity of Mayan lands, some considerable distance from Teotihuacan itself. The first city of this new power base at Copan was called Kinich Yaksh Kukmo and his origin was from the city of Tikal in the north. Our knowledge of this does not come from inscriptions, but actually comes from his teeth. In the year 2000, a skeleton was excavated from a tomb at Copan, and it is actually believed to be the tomb of Kinich Yaksh Kukmo. And in a very similar way to the study of Utsi the Iceman, 
a man who lived over 5,000 years ago and whose body was preserved in ice in the lands of northern Italy until the modern age, we can determine a lot about where he spent his lifetime from his remains. By the way, if you want to know more about Utzi the Iceman, we spoke of him way back in Volume 1, particularly Episode 18. The suggested remains of Kinich Yaksh Kukmo, the king of Copan, and the strontium content of his teeth suggest that he originated from Tikal. This is significant because depictions of him show a connection to Teotihuacan, although there is nothing to suggest from his physical remains that he ever went to Teotihuacan in person. This points towards an aspect of Teotihuacan culture such as methods of dress being important to the ruling class of Tikal and that Copan may have been established as an important ceremonial centre by a migrant group from Tikal in the early 5th century with Tikal's ruling dynasty being strongly linked to Teotihuacan since its suggested conquest by a spear thrower owl just a few decades previous. There are a number of references to Teotihuacan in early Mayan cities but I would not be too focused on imperial military expansion as a reason as there is little evidence of great armies conquering lands in Mesoamerica during this period although there is certainly evidence of military exchanges and attempts by what one could describe as city-states to expand their influence which we have seen as a natural response to competition wherever multiple city-states have existed. We only have to look at ancient Mesopotamia and even the early cultures of classical Greece and Italy to see this in action. What we do know is that there was some ethnic dispersal that is evidence in these centuries of Mesoamerica where the culture of Teotihuacan migrated alongside migrant groups into the lands of the Mayans in the same way that we see Zapotecs living in Teotihuacan itself. In the following century, the 6th century, we begin to see a decline in the power of Teotihuacan. We can suggest that there was no evidence among the scant evidence that we have that there was any notion of a lack of strength of Teotihuacan before its decline from being the greatest and most heavily populated city of Mesoamerica and one that had successfully and collectively built the greatest structures in Mesoamerica up to this date. There is evidence of turmoil in Teotihuacan which has led historians to think that the city was sacked until further study revealed that the destruction was limited to the more important civic buildings and that there was evidence of people suffering from malnutrition during this period. There is no doubt that the population at Teotihuacan was large and highly dependent on agriculture and this leads us to one of the more highly regarded reasons for the possible decline of Teotihuacan. One of the things that affects crop yields is natural disasters such as floods and earthquakes, but longer term effects can be caused by volcanoes and we see a more recent instance of such an event when Mount Tambora in the modern country of Indonesia erupted in 1815. Despite this event occurring in a specific area of the world, the consequences were felt globally as debris from the eruption 
filled the planet's atmosphere, causing changes to the Earth's delicate climate. The following year, 1816, has been called the year without a summer, because global temperatures dropped so dramatically that there were significant natural disasters such as floods and resulting direct and indirect crop failures that had a major impact on some precarious, over-dependent or vulnerable societies worldwide. Historians studying the mid-first millennium have identified what they believe to be a similar event that had a long-lasting global effect, and this effect has been called the Late Antique Little Ice Age. But difficulties have been faced when trying to point the finger at a volcanic suspect, especially as some believe that there were a sequence of major eruptions. The consequences were believed to be a general globe in cooling for maybe as long as an entire century. But initially there were a group of extreme weather events centred around the years 535 and 536 that caused issues for cultures of Europe, the Middle East, the Far East and the Americas. And it is commonly described that although the sun was visible, that it appeared to lack its usual power to radiate heat and light and has been described as weak, which would be consistent with the consequences of a volcanic winter. We do have to remember that even though there is strong evidence of an agricultural crisis at Teotihuacan and there is strong evidence of an anarchical uprising, that we don't actually have much evidence about what really happened and that so much is based on supposition that could be reasoned against with as much vigour as it can be reasoned for. There have been a great many climatic shifts and changes throughout history and it can almost become quite a lazy thing to blame every dramatic historical event to a convenient climatic alteration. But it is still very interesting to consider the evidence and draw your own conclusion based on your own feelings. Either way, the culture of this great city did indeed decline and fragment to the point where its very own constitution disappeared from human consciousness. Centuries of local tribes scrambling for supremacy would result in a rise of the Aztecs who would have no knowledge of the constitution of Teotihuacan and we can view the Aztecs as the first culture to attempt to start making sense of the site and learn about its history and significance which is of course a study that continues with passion up to the modern day. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. Another fine example of why we cannot ignore pre-Columbian America and um, how it, uh, in some aspects, is just as wonderful as any other area of the world. We spend a lot of our time talking about Rome and China during this period and, and, you know, even anything related to the Silk Road, anything surrounding the cultures of the Silk Road, such as the Persians um, and even the Greeks, the Egyptians. We, we talk about all of these. We don't really give enough uh, sort of attention to the Americas. And, and, and often I think pre-Columbian America is centred around, you know, the wonders of Machu Picchu and Chichen Itza and, and, and places like that. But... When you look at a city such as Teotihuacan, it's uh, it's quite incredible 
quite incredible. And then you look at the completely detached wonder of the uh, the geoglyphs, the Nazca geoglyphs, which we spoke of uh, a couple of episodes ago. And um, really, human history, wherever you go in the world, is is absolutely astonishing. And um, and you know, it never fails to surprise me quite what humans were capable of doing um, all that time ago without the wonders of modern technology. So, um, so it really does point towards, unless you, of course, believe that there is um, some greater power at play, whether you think it might be aliens or a super race that existed years ago or even, you know, some kind of spiritual combination of cultures um, even if you do believe that it's just autonomous, uh, much like I do, um, it still uh, blows your mind how wonderful um, humans are as a, as a race of animals that they can create such incredible things. So um, another fascinating episode. Now, of course, if you are enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support the podcast, you'd like to keep it going. There's so many more episodes still to be written. We're, we're not even halfway through the entire project, so um, all of your support would be gratefully received in terms of trying to get to the end of the project. Um, you can, of course, make monthly donations. Just simply go to the Patreon page, and the link can be found at the thehistoryofthewordpodcast.com website so it's all one word history of the world podcast.com even if um even if you don't want to make any kind of donation the website is well worth a visit there's plenty plenty of stuff on there a bibliography for the episodes um some links to interesting um accompaniments to the information of the episodes um we'll be looking to do a whole lot more and um, of course there is a history of the world podcast illuminati a page that lists all the people who have made any kind of contribution and you can join that list you can become a member of the history of the world podcast illuminati by making any kind of monthly donation through the patreon website and of course we uh, we we do give out rewards for people who make donations whether that be gifts sent through the post or or even questions answered, and, and even some have, have commissioned their own episodes uh, on the subject of their choice, so it's well worth a look. Um, new members of the History of the World podcast, uh, Illuminati, to to um, to recognise this week, we've got Grammar Socialist and Jesse Lowen, um, who are now lifelong members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, and, and you shall be recognised accordingly so thank you so much to you both now then as ever if you uh, if you don't want to stretch to a financial donation which is perfectly fine this uh, this project will always be a free project um, at the moment we've got the luxury of being ad free as well so it's uh, you know it's not not too bad is it really um, all I would ask um, in return is that you just rate and review the podcast and uh, if wherever you listen to it just take uh, you know 30 seconds just to write a brief review or even just a five star rating of, or, or whatever the rating system of your chosen podcast um, listening platform is uh, would help the podcast massively it starts to expose it to a wider audience because the ratings are, are high so really really appreciate that 
And of course, uh, I'll read out your reviews and your emails. I, I tend to do that each week, and I'm more than happy to do that and uh, recognise you for your efforts. It's quite um, a significant time now for the History of the World podcast. We're almost three years old, and uh, next week we're going to be uh, publishing the the last significant episode of Volume 3. So this will be the last the last episode where we'll be introducing new information uh, when we talk about the classic Mayans um, because after that episode we'll be wrapping up volume three we'll be summarizing the whole thing and then, and then we'll be well, then we'll be closing it so um, incredible really I mean it's taken us about a year and a half hasn't it to get through it and we've explored some incredible cultures um, along the way so um, quite an quite an achievement, I think, for all of us to to have reached this point. So, thank you ever so much for your support. And um, listen, I, I can't wait till next week to tell you the story of the the classic Mayans. So, uh, do be sure to join me. And um, and thank you so much for listening to, to this uh, to this week's episode. And until we meet again next week, don't forget to be good. Come to the History of the World Podcast.com and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati? Drop me a line at History of the World Podcast at mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.